0: Chapter 10 of What is Industrial Democracy by Norman Thomas. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by the Progressing America Project. What is Industrial Democracy? Chapter 10 Is Democracy Possible? The earlier radicals had a very comforting faith in the infinite perfectibility of human nature. It never occurred to them to doubt that if social arrangements and institutions could be right, all would be well with the race of men. They have their numerous and earnest successors, who still believe that once capitalism or the state is abolished, utopia will be at hand. But into the Eden of this faith has crept the serpent of doubt. The theological conception of total depravity thrown out the front door of philosophy is, in a fair way, to enter, slightly disguised, through the side door of science. To speak plainly, men are resting their denials of industrial democracy not so much on belief in the positive merits of the present order as on disbelief in the capacity of mankind to run a better one. It is, of course, a wonderful comfort to the privileged of earth, to believe that all struggles to change the system under which they fare so well, must necessarily be futile, and they have been surprisingly successful in propagating the same notion among the dispossessed. Why Men Work. The first stock objection to industrial democracy rests on belief in the profit motive as the mainspring of economic action. That conviction has been searchingly analyzed and answered by Harry Frederick Ward, In a preceding pamphlet in this series entitled The Profit Motive. He makes his case that this same profit motive is a sorry master, anarchic, wasteful, destructive of life's higher values. It is furthermore an ill-considered libel on human nature to affirm that men work only for what economists call profit. If so, the great majority who get no profits would quit tomorrow most men now, as always, work to live. All able-bodied men ought to have to work to live. When they do, when society has ended the possibility of living by owning, when the perverted notion of the aristocratic dignity of being a parasite has perished, not only will valuable workers be added to the ranks, but men deprived of excuse for envy of the shirkers may face the common tasks with new zeal. Some men and women, and those the most valuable—scientists, inventors, and artists—even in this age of the dollar—work for the satisfaction of an inner creative urge. The possibilities of self-expression in work have been sadly reduced for the average man by making him a cog in the machine. Sure, if I'd tightened up nut number 999 any longer in that factory, I'd have become nut number 999 myself. Is the way one ex-Ford employee put it. Machinery, as we have previously argued, carries with it the possibility of good out of proportion to any essential evil, but it is necessary that we seek to compensate men for the uninteresting mechanical monotony it imposes. This for all workers must mean an increase and enrichment of leisure. But for some workers, a genuine share in the government of the whole industry and a concern for its progress, will also bring real compensation. Finally, men work out of response to the needs and satisfaction of fellowship and mutual aid. Let men test the strength of these three reasons for work and good work among men. First, necessity. Second, the creative impulse. And third, mutual aid. Footnote, to which may be added habit. See Kautsky, Social Revolution. End footnote. And they will find how wasteful is an economic system which builds on devotion to profit as its cornerstone and educates man from the cradle to the grave to make acquisition of things for his own use and power the measure of his worth. Inequality and Industrial Democracy Another ground on which democracy, both political and economic, is denied is the existence of inequality. Now inequality in the human species is a fact, though it is distorted out of all resemblance to fact in the Nordic wonderland of certain preachers of race superiority. With regard to individuals of all races, it is to be questioned whether as yet our intelligence testers have discovered adequate ways of distinguishing between native capacity and educational attainment. Both our eugenists and educators have a noble task to play in their efforts to teach us how to breed and educate better human stock. Our quarrel is not with real scientists, but with those who would use a mongrel science as an apology for social discrimination based as little on eugenics and individual intelligence as upon justice and brotherhood. Meanwhile, inequality or difference between men does not justify autocracy. Our own government by plutocracy is not government by the wise and the fit. Only in a society stripped of organized exploitation can we reasonably expect men to heed the plans of scientists for race improvement, for only such a society will have recovered from the ancient desire for inferiors to be exploited. I have heard Plato's Government of the Wise cited as justification for the government of our captains of industry and politics. But Plato first took pains to divorce the wise men of his aristocratic republic, From the pecuniary interest in their own decisions. And that is the very last thing our plutocrats and their political agents want. The defenders of plutocracy, on the ground of human inequality, can never justify the inherited wealth of the unfit, a Harry Kendall Thaw, for instance, protected by all sorts of legal devices. Essentials of Democracy, democracy would be easier to work if all men took a real interest in working it. Nevertheless, democracy does not require that all men should be passionately interested in the problems of government and administration. It primarily requires, first, that the ordinary folks be given legal and peaceable machinery of control in their own interests over the experts and specialists who must necessarily direct administration, and two, that the worker capable of and interested in more direct participation in management should get his chance without having to rise in the owner class, a class which we hope will be merged with the workers who will then also be the owners. This rather modest statement of the essentials of a working scheme of democratic control is based on the apparent fact that workers generally are by no means so keenly interested in the control of industry as some of the guild socialists have assumed. On the other hand, they are not so indifferent that they can be permanently satisfied with a system of benevolent and generous paternalism. In proportion as the most pressing needs of food are satisfied, other things emerge to the level of consciousness. The extraordinary phenomenon of nationalism shows how ready men are to prefer self-government, or at least, government by their own bosses to even the best government by outsiders. The same phenomenon may yet be observed on a wide scale among the workers in industry. Some Difficulties Considered It is impossible to try to think through questions of human desire and capacity for self-government without discovering how tentative must be our conclusions and how much work remains to be done before we can have any social science on which we may depend, with even a part of the trust we repose in the physical sciences. To the end of the story, incalculable elements of the creative will and the unpredicted emergence of new social habits will probably baffle the prophet. There have been various excellent deterministic explanations of past historic events, but a few, if any, satisfactory forecasts of them. Footnote, Seba Eldridge's political action, Lippincott, is an interesting and valuable, but by no means conclusive attempt to deduce from psychology the limits of democratic action. End the great question is whether mankind has the intellectual capacity to deal with the intricate problems of cooperation which his astonishing mechanical success has imposed upon him. In our world we cannot afford to play up race and nationalist prejudice, for all races are economically interdependent. We cannot afford the destructive madness of the mob psychology. Men fear thought more than anything else in the world, and so they fall back on perilous slogans and emotional impulses to manage social machinery literally charged with dynamite. Social reeducation Without minimizing the seriousness of the situation in which we find ourselves, we still have reason for hope. That is indicated by the record of actual progress in the approaches to industrial democracy we have already reviewed. They indicate a capacity of man to re-educate himself and to form new and more adequate social groupings. In this capacity for social education lies our hope. Man has long ago learned to measure the strength of the material he uses. Nothing is perfect. We use wood and brick and steel with a realization of the limit of strain that can be put upon them. May we not learn the limits of strain that can be put upon ourselves and, for instance, try to educate a generation profoundly distrustful of unreflective crowd action. We may not make ourselves immune to crowd psychology. We may conceivably learn to avoid the situations which turn men into mobs. We may learn that the essential of progress is not the automatic conformity too often confused with democracy, but a development of thoughtful individuality in free men, bound together by fellowship. It is no use blinking the difficulties of attaining this fellowship of free men. If some of our social groupings point in that direction, there are others deep-rooted in our life which wage war against them. Professor Kimball Young, after enumerating cliques, secret societies, religious groups, and political and economic feudalism, as primary groupings thus comments. The source of control of these primary groups runs very deep in us all. Fears, desires for power and security, and community intimacy, and all sorts of personal attachments of a primitive kind. Whether we can bring these fundamental groupings to heal is the really great problem. Footnote: The Nation, March 25, 1925, page 333. Whether Professor Young is right in his placing of religious groups may depend on whether the spirit of a Gandhi and a Rauschenbusch can trump in them. If so, religion will be an aid to democracy. End footnote. One step in bringing them to heal is to recognize that task as our great problem. Another is to curb the exploitation of our fears and prejudices by interested individuals and groups. The art of propaganda during and since the Great War has come to a marvelous development. It is a propaganda developed and controlled by those who profit by it. It may for the time being serve its masters well, but its end is ruin for us all. Every halting advance toward industrial democracy tends somewhat to limit the power of these exploiters of passion and prejudice. While industrial democracy depends for its efficacy upon social education, it is unthinkable that we can completely re-educate ourselves within the old system that puts a premium on our stupidities. As, well, talk of learning to swim out of water. We learn by doing and experimentation is a part of education. Hence the importance of all steps toward industrial democracy. Can democracy choose its leaders? One of the outstanding objections to democracy is its tendency to choose men for responsible posts for irrelevant reasons. We don't choose a plumber as our dentist because he's a jolly good fellow, but we may elect him to a post for which he has as little fitness. This is a real objection, though it is exaggerated by critics of democracy. We do now choose our own plumber, doctor, or dentist but we do it out of the ranks of those who have satisfied certain requirements as to fitness. Why may not the principle be extended to our collective choice of public administrators? A cut-and-dried civil service may make for a dead bureaucracy, but there is nothing bureaucratic or undemocratic in the notion that to be eligible as a candidate for certain types of service in the state or in the management of industry, a man must have met tests of knowledge and ability. This notion is more likely to grow with a democratic control of industry in which incapacity directly affects the worker than in the political state. Many a man will vote for Tom, Dick, or Harry for mayor or president, who would not vote for him for manager of his own factory. Skeptics as to the capacity of industrial democracy to choose efficient leaders forget that even now in theory the choice of leaders is left to a confused, scattered, ill-informed mass of stockholders. Is it inconceivable that workers, for the sake of their own interest, will be less wise than absentee owners have proved in the choice of their leaders? Guiding Principles Such considerations as these point to no panacea for a sick social order. We cannot lay out a single track railroad to utopia but we can discern certain guiding principles in our struggle for a better society. 1. Industrial democracy must be efficient. It must give us a basis for existence. Man does not live by bread alone, but he lives by bread. Part of our quarrel with our present economic order is its criminal wastefulness, in the face of our natural resources and our scientific knowledge, its failure to produce adequately or to distribute equitably. Nevertheless, it still keeps going and we cannot stop the machinery while we experiment with utopian ideals. That means that progress must be gradual. There may be a revolution in dominant social ideals and in the control of government, but actual economic change, as Russia proves, cannot be affected by fiat overnight. A system that can give bread, even the half loaf of slavery cannot be conquered by utopians who in their dreams of perfection and their quarrels as to the way of the attainment forget that hungry children must be fed. On the other hand, communism with a far from utopian degree of censorship and political repression will be reasonably secure if it can supply bread with a minimum of economic repression. 2. The new social order will be a living growth, not a mechanical creation. That means that we cannot impose upon society a geometric plan, but must seek to discover and stimulate existing tendencies toward a more adequate and satisfying social order. As we have seen, there is not one tendency, there are many. Therefore, the unlikelihood that any nice scheme based on some slogan like all power to the producers, or to the consumers, will prevail. We shall see somewhat different experiments in different countries. Our immediate program would probably include a. Public ownership of basic utilities with democratic administration. This will require continued development of labor unions and the growth of a political party consciously based on the interests of the workers as opposed to the owners. The Plum Plan and the Miner's Plan for coal naturalization may be taken as pointing the way. At this moment, the transcendent issue for us is the ownership of superpower, which is rapidly creating a new industrial revolution before our eyes. Competitive private superpower systems are wasteful. A private monopoly over superpower will give its owners almost complete power over industrial life. If superpower cannot be socialized, and that promptly, the whole cause of industrial democracy will be indefinitely delayed. Another pressing problem relates to the scientific control of money by the state and a more democratic control of the machinery of credit. All this use of the state for purposes of industrial democracy will require improvement in the machinery of government and reform in the basic ideas of the state itself. A steady development of workers' representation in private enterprises, but of workers given dignity and power by the backing of a labor movement, bigger and more extensive than the organization of particular workers in particular shops. c. A growth on the one hand of farmers' cooperatives and on the other hand of consumers' cooperatives, the latter to handle retail distribution and in some fields like housing, for instance, to cooperate or compete in friendly emulation with government schemes. These plans will doubtless begin with national boundaries, indeed they have begun, But unless they are backed up by a genuine internationalism of labor and of consumers' cooperatives, and are accompanied by a development of international machinery for the more equitable allocation of raw materials, they will not solve the problems of peace and well being. 3. While the new social order must be a growth, and while it cannot wait to feed the hungry until its plans are perfected, it must be based on great and truly revolutionary conceptions of human freedom and fellowship. For while men must have bread, bread alone will not feed their hunger for beauty, freedom, fellowship, and truth. It is of these things that a prophet mad, privately controlled mechanistic order deprives us. It is these things we must seek, else we perish. And in the quest for these things, though it be often baffled, lies the joy of comradeship and the satisfaction of the deepest impulses in man. End of chapter 10 End of What is Industrial Democracy? by Norman Thomas